Recently, as many of you know, my uh, one of my children moved to California. And so I thought it would be wise for me to enroll in a, a loyalty program to rack up uh, airline miles on, you know, because I, I figure I'm going to go, Tracy and I are going to go see, he's going to come home and see us more often. And, and so there'd be more flying involved. So so I enrolled in a loyalty program. And, and here's the thing about these loyalty programs, right, is that um, it, it's kind of an interesting thing. You, you have to kind of pick an airline and you have to remain loyal to them and, and, and enroll in their program. And then they'll give you miles for certain things. Maybe if you use their credit card or, or do this or that or whatever, they'll give you loyalty miles and, and there'll be some benefits to that relationship, right? Uh, but I find it interesting, at least me, you know, I find it interesting once I enrolled in the loyalty program and I started reading the rules, uh, that uh, the loyalty kind of goes one way, right? <laughs> if I remain faithful to them and only fly on their airline and use their credit card, they're going to give me some miles. But I just wonder what would happen if, I don't know, for example, I showed up at the airport and I decided that I needed to check an extra bag. Would they be like, oh, you're a loyal you are a loyal member. You are a loyal traveler. Of course, we'll give you anything I want. The rules explicitly say, no, that will not happen. This is this loyalty program is just for this, this, and this. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking for something a little bit more. I, I, I'm looking for something a little bit more from a loyalty relationship than, you know, a specific set of rules that you can't, you know, whatever. Sometimes life gets hard, like, right? Sometimes life gets messy and things kind of come off the wheel. Like, I want my loyalty program to be like, if I show, I'm a, I'm a early to get to the airport guy, you know, when they say you get there two hours, I typically obey that. And what I find is if I get there two hours early, first of all, nobody's there because they show up at the last minute. Nobody else on my flight is there. And second of all, I, I show up at the gate and there's another flight ready to go and they've got open seats. And I just like, hey, I'm a loyal member. Can I get on this flight and just get there early? And they're like, no. You've already checked your bag and we don't want to go to the effort of finding it and, you know, putting, is that loyalty? I don't, I, I don't know. Today, we're going to get into the book of Ruth and, and the book of Ruth, you know, uh, first of all, it's a very short book. It's only four chapters. But, uh, secondly, there's a lot of things in here. I'm just talking about for me to learn, <laughs> for me to learn. And one of the things that's going to come out in this book is, is a concept that's all throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's God's steadfast love for his people, right? It's the Hebrew word chesed. And uh, I, I'm using the word today, just to make it more relatable to us, I'm using the word loyalty. And we're going to see... Uh, we're going to see some things about that. So the big question that we're going to wrestle with as we work our way through Ruth, and specifically Ruth chapter 1 today, what does Ruth chapter 1 teach us about loyalty? Now, let me give you a little bit of an introduction to this book. I mean, in the first line of the book, there's a lot of information, but the first, the first phrase is, in the days when the judges ruled. Let's just stop right there. In the days when the judges ruled. Well, that gives you the historical setting of the book. It's the time of the, the Judges. And right before the book of Ruth is the book of Judges. And there's 21 chapters there for you to work your way through and to figure out what's going on at the time when Ruth is taking place. And I'll just give you a brief synopsis of it. The book of Judges is this weird period of time between when the Israelites took occupation of the promised land 
and when uh, the first king was named, King Saul. And so during this period of time, the, the nation is ruled by a series of people known as judges. Now, when you think of judges, you might think of Judge Sunderman, you know, who goes to our church. And uh, before he was retired, he used to sit and with a black gown on, you know, a black robe, and, and he would hold a gavel in his hand and he would make judgments. You know, he would, he would look at the law and look at what everything, what each side was saying, and he would render judgment. That's not like this, okay? The time of the judges was, these judges were kind of military type people, you know, uh, that would rise up and help Israel be delivered from one of her enemies. And in the book of Judges, we see cycles. We see these cycles that repeat themselves over and over again. So here's how the cycle goes. First, there's a time of peace. And then uh, the Israelites, the, the people of the nation of Israel, they begin to flirt around or, or do evil or worship false gods. They do something that is evil in God's sight. And so what God does in order to and again, remember God's steadfast love. He's, he's always working in the lives of his people to do what's best for them. And in this case, it's to draw them back to him, right? So God sends a foreign oppressor uh, in the book of Judges, often different nations at different times. He sends these foreign, foreign nations to conquer Israel and to put them under the, that nation's control and, and wreak havoc. They do all kinds of bad stuff to the people of Israel. And then the people of Israel begin to cry out to God, to the one true God. And so God would then raise up a judge, right, to fight against their enemies and reestablish peace in the land and uh, sometimes would lead those people to worship the one true God. And there would be peace for a while. And then the process would repeat. They would start worshiping false gods or doing evil on the side of the Lord. And then this process would repeat itself over and over again. And one of the things that is worthy of note uh, in the book of Judges is that it's a downward cycle. Right in the first few, well, let me just let me just read. Uh, if you flip back, I haven't even gotten into Ruth yet, but if you flip back to Judges chapter three, uh, let's just read about the first judge, and this will kind of let you in on the cycle, right? So Judges chapter three verse seven says this: and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God, and served Baals and the Ashtoreth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan. <sighs> Deep breath. Rishathayim. I've tried that word a hundred times. Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And when the people of Israel served this guy, they served him eight years, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel, and he went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over this man. So the, the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And that cycle repeats itself over and over, except... What you're going to notice if you read the entire book of Judges, which is not a bad idea to get ready for Ruth, what you're going to notice is that by the end of the book, the, the immorality and the iniquity that Israel is getting itself into, it gets worse over time. So it's kind of this downward cycle all throughout the book of Judges. And that is the time that's going on 
in the book of Ruth. So flip back to the book of Ruth. Now, can I just make a, I'm gonna make a general summary statement. And again, you go read the book of Judges this week in your, in your private quiet time and tell me if I'm wrong, but Israel was struggling during the period of the Judges. Israel as a whole was struggling with its loyalty to God. They were not remaining faithful to him. They were, they were going through these cycles and, and some would argue, I would argue a downward cycle. They were struggling with their loyalty to God. Now, uh, next is who wrote the book of Ruth? And, and the honest answer is the, the book of Ruth does not tell us, it doesn't like tell us who wrote the book of Ruth. So I can only point to Jewish tradition, which points to Samuel, the, the last of the judges, right? Uh, don't know that for sure, but according to Jewish tradition, Samuel is the one that wrote the book of Ruth. Now, let's just take a minute here and read Ruth chapter one. Let's get it in our heads so that we can uh, look at what it has to say. Ruth chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons. The name of this man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that each of you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem and they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is that Naomi? Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they, be, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Okay, that's a lot. There's a lot going on here, but let's, let's just get into it. Uh, there's really just a few things I want to bring out of this text. And I just want to, before I even get into it, I want to set the table and just say this. <laughs> Life, I think this statement goes without saying, but I'm just going to say it anyway. Life in a sin-cursed world that we all live in is messy. It's messy. And if you're a Christian human being who thinks that if you just do everything right and if you just follow the rules, that everything is going to turn out exactly perfectly in a sin-cursed world, I got news for you. You're, you're thinking of heaven. You're not thinking of here. Life is messy. And life, and what we see in, in this text is kind of a hodgepodge, kind of a mixture of results. Some people are being very loyal. Some people are being disloyal. And some we go, ah, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I understand why they made those decisions. So let's just, let's just get into it. Okay. Let's just get into it. First of all, the, the first part of the outline is this. Are we going to have loyalty to God or loyalty to your stomach? Loyalty to God or loyalty to your stomach? What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the text tells us that there's a famine in the land. Okay, and we're going to talk more about that in a second. But I want to talk about, about Elimelech. Elimelech, that's the man's name. I want to talk about his reaction to the situation. There's a famine in the land, so Elimelech says, let's go and move to Moab. And the text gives us clues in chapter 1. The text gives us clues that this was not a widespread idea. This is probably Elimelech and his family. It's, it's probably not a widespread thing. And I get that because... Um, it, the text doesn't, first of all, doesn't tell us that there was a mass exodus of the land of Israel. It just says Elimelech and his family went. And then the second thing that I get is when, when Naomi finally returns, it's kind of like everybody in town knew that that was the family that left during the famine. Because, hey, it's Naomi, look. Um, I don't know that for certain, but I, I'm just saying that uh, Elimelech, for whatever reason, maybe because he heard that there was good food there, uh, he decided to move his family to Moab. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is that Moab and Israel have a long history, and that history even unfolds a bit in the book of Judges, right? Which is the time period that this book is set in. So, for, does, does anybody know where the Moabites came from? The Moabites are really from the same kind of genetic family tree as the Israelites. I mean, Abraham, you had Abraham and then you had his nephew, Lot. Remember that whole thing in Genesis? And uh, after the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing, uh, 
there's this episode where Lot's daughters, I think it's in Genesis 19, yeah, Genesis 19, uh, Lot's daughters decide to concoct this scheme where they're going to get their father Lot drunk and they're going to have relations with him, which is kind of disgusting even by 2021 standards. But in doing that, they produced offspring. Those women, those daughters of Lot produced offspring. And one of those offspring was a man named Moab, who is the father of this people, right? And the relationship between Moab and Israel doesn't get better after that, right? In Numbers chapter 22, um, you see the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. They're, they've made the big exodus out of Egypt and they're coming into the land. And the Moabites are fearing the Israelites because they have these great number, right? It's a, just a big horde of people and they're coming out of Egypt and the Moabites are afraid of that. And so they, that's when they enlist the help of uh, Balaam to try to concoct some sort of word of the God, word of God against Israel or something like that. It ends up backfiring on them, but you get the idea. Uh, in Numbers chapter 25, Israel began to intermarry with the daughters of Moab, right? And to worship their gods. And, and God commanded that the men who are worshiping these false gods of Baal and Peor, that they be hanged. In Deuteronomy 23, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament law, God prohibits Moabites from entering the assembly of God meaning uh, entering the, the, the sanctified people of God from kind of converting and coming into the people of God. He says Moabites are prohibited from that from the ten, uh, for 10 generations and forever, I think is what it says, which is going to make us scratch our heads later on in this book, but I'm, I'm going to get to that when we get to it. But anyway, and then in, even in the book of Judges, in the book of Judges, the Moabites uh, are a people that do battle. They They battle with the Israelites, which begs the question, why on earth would Elimelech move his family to Moab? Why would he do that? He's moving them basically into enemy territory, and he's moving them into an area where the one true God is not worshipped. And the big, again, I should have mentioned this, um, not only is Ruth filled with these messy situations, the book of Ruth is filled with these messy situations, it's filled with irony. So here's a, here's a part of irony for you. A man whose name is Elimelech, which means in Hebrew, God is my king. That's what his name means. So imagine me walking around and, hey, it's me. God is my king. Nice to meet you. So God is my king moves away from Bethlehem in Judah, which that means the house of bread and praise, if you tack on Judah. Uh, so God is my king lives in the house of bread and praise, and he decides, this man whose name is God is my king, to move himself and his family to a place where God is not king. It's weird. It's weird. So there's irony there. Now, what's more is, if you go back and you study your Old Testament a little bit, you got to look at what is it, according to the Old Testament law, and I want you to remember something, and this is is very important, because if you don't get this, whenever Pat Robertson gets on TV and tells you why all these bad things are happening in the world, you'll tend to believe him, unless you understand this distinction, Okay? So don't, don't listen to Pat Robertson. Do not. Come see me if you're having a hard time with that. Because, because Pat Robertson pretends like we're still living under the Old Testament law and we're not. So in the Old Testament law, in the covenant that God had with Israel, there were reasons that famine would come on the land. And those reasons typically had to do with Israel's disobedience. 
So in, in places like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God told them, listen, there's going to be blessings if you do right according to my law, but there's going to be curses if you do poorly. If you, if you disobey me, there's going to be consequences to that. And some of those consequences are famine. Leviticus 26.20 says, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of your land shall not yield their fruit. Sound familiar? Sounds like famine. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 24, it says, The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Now again, this is the Israelites living in, under the Old Testament law that doesn't apply today. Jesus came and fulfilled the Old Testament law. We're not living under that covenant anymore. Not to say there isn't actions to our consequences, but for Pat Robertson to get up and say, the reason we're having all these tornadoes is because America is filled with sin. We're not under that covenant, okay? We don't know why God is allowing tornadoes and whatever. You know, we're not under that same covenant. So get that straight in your head, right? But what Elimelech should have known is that one of the one of the reasons that famine could come to the land was their disobedience. And I already told you, because it's the time of the judges, Israel is struggling with her loyalty to God. They're frequently running off and worshiping other gods and then coming back and then worshiping other gods and coming back. And so perhaps Elimelech should have been asking himself the question, instead of removing himself from the land, perhaps he should have stayed there and they should have repented. Perhaps they should have repented. You, you're all familiar with this verse, right? Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin. And here it is, and will heal their land. Now I see this on all kinds of stuff, plaques and stuff today, but this really, this is for, this is the Old Testament, right? This is the Old Testament that's talking to the people of Israel. And so what I see in this text, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I see a man whose name, ironically, is God is my king. Instead of staying in the land of promise, Israel, and instead of repenting of what he and the other people are involved in sinfully, he gets up and he moves himself into enemy territory. They're enemies militarily, and they're also enemies spiritually. Probably not a good move probably not reflective of loyalty to God. But next what we see in the text is loyalty to God or loyalty to your desires. So it, the text goes on and now they're living in the land of Moab. And can I just say that in our, in our lives, one bad decision sometimes leads to another. So here you've got, you've got, a limo, you've got a Limelech has moved his family into the land and apparently he died. Okay, so he died. Don't know why, but probably disease or something got him. And so maybe old age, who knows? But, but anyway, he moves himself into the land of Moab and he dies. And now he's got these two sons who it just so happens are coming of age when they want to get married in the land of Moab. Now, what do you know about your Old Testament? Are, are Israelites supposed to intermarry with foreign women? No, no. And so here you are, you're living in the land of Moab and uh, Elimelech is dead and the boys are coming of age and they want to get married. They want to start a life. And what do they do? They, they have a decision to make, right? Do they marry a Moabite woman or do they wait and move back and marry an Israelite wife? Well, what we see is they married a Moabite. They each married Moabite women. 
Now, there's commentaries out there about, there's commentaries out there that will tell you what, what the names of Malon and Killian mean. Uh, and some of them will say one of them's name means sickly and the other one's name means, you know, not well or ill, uh, something like that. Um, or one commentary I read said one of them's name means sickly and the other one's name means destruction. So when, if you're a Moabite lady and you're marrying into to that, I don't know if that was, there, there might've been some, some wisdom in not doing that. Anyway, they married Moabite women. Now what's the problem with that? The Moabites worshiped a different God. And as much as we'd like to say that, I see people doing this a lot. They say this, I, I'm Christian and I'm going to marry a non-Christian, okay? But it's going to be cool. I'll keep going to church and, and maybe someday my non-Christian spouse will get saved or, um, you know, whatever. But, and I've used this analogy before. I'm going to use it again. But the reality of the situation is more like Ohio State, Michigan football, okay? Jim Tainer, this is for you. <laughs> Just, I think Jim's a Michigan fan, and he's married to Maryland, uh, Ohio State fan, right? But but here's what I'm saying: like, you know, say that you grow up, you grow up, and you grow up in a house that's diehard Buck, Buckeyes, Buckeyes football, right? And as you grow up, and you're, let's say, you, you grow up, doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, but you you not only know everything there is to know about Buckeyes football, you know who the names, right? You know the names of every single recruit in the recruiting class coming in next year, and you even know how they're shaping up on the practice field, right? Like you're a fan, and you get all, on game days, you get all decked out in your Ohio State stuff and whatever, and never in your wildest imagination could you ever associate with a Michigan fan. But then one day, you see, maybe you're a guy, and you see a lady, and you really like her, Right, and and you're you think she's fine, and and you get to know her, and you have a lot of common interests, and everything's cool, and everything, and then the next thing you know, you find out that she is a Michigan fan. Now, maybe you're the type of guy that you would walk into a restaurant in in Columbus, and you would see somebody with a Michigan hat on, and you'd walk up to him and knock it off their head. Right? That's that's how brazen you are in your faithfulness to Ohio State. Right? What are you going to do now? especially if you marry this girl, right? And what are you going to do when she says to you things, evil, wicked things like this that comes out of this seductress lady's mouth? She says, I'll make you a wager, honey. Whoever wins the next uh, Ohio State-Michigan football game, the other one has to go to the other, to, to go see three games next season at the other one's stadium. Now, I know you Buckeye fans are going to say, when's Michigan ever going to beat us again, right? But... You have a possibility of, of being sucked into a situation where you're going to be in Ann Arbor, which is like what? The worst thing ever? Hell on earth for some of you folks? I don't know. But the whole point of what I'm trying to say here is that if you are a worshiper of the one true God and you, you connect yourself like these men did to Moabite women who worship false gods, perhaps Ashtra or Baal or Chemosh or some other god. Your attitude, your, your, your vigor towards, your, your energy towards the hatred of those other gods and the true worship, it softens a bit. <laughs> and even if you go back and you look at Solomon, King Solomon, who was supposedly the wisest man and the richest man who ever lived, right? When he began to marry foreign women, and bring them into his fold, 
they drug his heart away and he eventually began to construct worship centers around Israel for these false gods. So I don't think Malon and Killian were quite faithful to God, at least according to his revealed word, they weren't faithful to it. Now, the second thing that we see in this section is, uh, do we maintain, commit, uh, maintain commitment to, or to Naomi and probably die single or return home and remarry? And here I'm talking about Ruth and Orpah. Ruth and Orpah. So what, what do we see in the text? We see, it, it's weird. They, they pack their stuff, they get ready, and it seems like from the text that they're heading down the road to go to Bethlehem. They're on the road. They're like physically on the way, which is no small thing. And Naomi kind of stops the train. You know, she stops the train and turns around and looks at her daughters-in-law and says, go back. She's thinking ahead. She's like, I've got Moabite daughters-in-law. I'm going to be bringing them into the land of Israel, into Bethlehem. No man is going to want to marry Moabite women. Go back. Go back to your homes. Go back into your mother's house and perhaps you'll have a chance. You're young, you can maybe remarry. And can I say, what is shocking about this text is that Ruth, a Moabite, not an Israelite, a Moabite, somebody who has grown up in the worship of false gods, does something that demonstrates true loyalty. She makes a commitment to to Naomi that's like sevenfold, and we'll, we'll explore that in a second. Now, I want to stop and say this. It would be tempting to say, well, Orpah did the wrong thing, and Ruth did the right thing. And I, I prefer not to think about it that way, uh, because any, any one of us could understand uh, Orpah's situation, right? Her situation is, she is a foreigner. She is going into a foreign land. She is probably going into a situation where she'll never get married. Naomi is probably quite a bit older, so she's probably thinking ahead and saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go take care of Naomi in the land of Israel and Bethlehem. Then Naomi's going to die, and here I am going to be a single Moabite woman living in a land where nobody will want to have anything to do with me. That's not going to be fun. So she did what I think many reasonable people would do. She went back to her mother's house. I don't blame her for that. What is shocking about this text is the extreme loyalty that Ruth puts on display. Look at what she says. She makes a sevenfold commitment to Naomi. She says this, I'm following you. Let's, let's just look at it. Let's just look at the text. Um, she said, do not urge me to leave or return from following you. And then she said, I'll go where you go, right? I'll live where you live. Your people will be my people. And this is shocking. Everything that I know about the truth, everything that I've grown up in, every, every worship ceremony that I've ever been to as a child, I forsake that and now your God will be my God. In other words, I'm going to engage myself in the worship of the one true God. Where you die, I will die, and nothing, you know, nothing is going to separate us until death. Wow. Listen, I want to challenge your thinking here for a minute. You read that, and you probably read that very casually, but how many times in our lives have we made a commitment like that? Maybe when you got married, you made a commitment like that. 
We had children. This is, not, this is not an everyday occurrence. And if you mount on top, up on top of that, that by making this decision, Ruth is basically guaranteeing, for all intents and purposes, for what she knows, she's guaranteeing that she's going to be moving in with this older woman. She's going to live out a single life, and she's going to be left there. When Naomi dies, she's going to be left there alone. And still, she dedicates herself to this. Now, I just want to point out something that's, that's in, oftentimes found in the Bible, right? It's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. Once in a while, you'll come up on a situation where God will use a foreigner to make Israel or his people in the church look bad, <laughs> right? To, 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 to show that there's faithfulness out there. There's loyalty out there that really make... The biggest example I can think of in the Old Testament is the book of Jonah, right? Where Jonah, who is a Jewish guy, is sent to the Assyrians, to the Ninevites, and he's sent there and, and he doesn't want to go. And he goes and he gets swallowed by a whale and has to be barfed up on the land and all that kind of stuff before God says, okay, now are you ready to go? So then he finally does go to Nineveh and he preaches to Nineveh that they need to repent. And what does Nineveh do? They repent harder than any Israelite has ever repented. They repented so hard that not only did they put sackcloth and ashes on themselves, the, the, the heads of the land, the king, you know, he called a, a fast and, and sackcloth and ashes. They put sackcloth and ashes on their animals. They repented so hard. It made Israel look like, eh, they repented, but Nineveh repented. You know, they were sincere in their repentance. Did it last? You know, well, history tells us no. But, but what I, the point I'm trying to make here is what we, what we see in Ruth, we see Elimelech, a man whose name means my God is king, doing some sketchy things and, and arguably unfaithful, unloyal things to God. We see Malhan and Killian, a couple of Jewish boys who grew up in the faith, who are marrying, choosing to marry Moabite women. And then all of a sudden we see this Moabite single widow who makes a commitment like this. And God is going to use this. God is going to do some pretty powerful things with this. And can I say some critically important things to your and my salvation? God is going to use this commitment that Ruth made, and it's going to be very meaningful in our lives. Anyway, I just point that out. The last thing that we see in here is this, and it's, are we going to have loyalty to God or are we going to play the victim? Playing the victim is a big thing in our, in our culture today. And uh, we, we kind of see a little pieces of that with Naomi, right? So they're coming back into town, verse 19, they're coming back into town and uh, the women yell out, is, that, is this Naomi? And then she says to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. The word Naomi, Naomi's name in Hebrew, I, I believe means pleasant and Mara means bitter. So don't call me pleasant, call me, call me bitter, right? And then she goes on to, to explain why. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She says, call me bitter. Call me bitter. Now, what Naomi doesn't understand, listen, Again, life is messy, and any of us looking at life through the prism of Naomi could, could sympathize a bit with her pain. Probably, we probably can't, because how many of us in this room have lost a spouse and two children the way she did? It's, 
It's got to be devastating. It's got to be, it's got to be very, very difficult. It reminds you of the book of Job a little bit, right? But what Naomi is saying as she comes into the town reflects her attitude towards God in that moment and doesn't, but doesn't accurately portray the situation. Is she empty? No. No, there is a person with her, Ruth, who has made a commitment to her that is very profound, very self-sacrificial, very amazing. So she's not empty. She is actually truly blessed. She's truly blessed because of the commitment that Ruth has made to her to come with her. I want to talk just for a minute before I wrap up on this word calamity, this word that Naomi, that's translated in our English Bibles as calamity. You know, folks, again, I think that many of us as Christians operate our lives under the, under the thinking that if we just follow God's way, everything is going to be perfect and it's going to be good. It's going to be easy. That's just not the case in this sin-stained world. It's just not the case. And so we, we have to constantly remind ourselves of passages like Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Sometimes God is going to put us through tremendous trials. Sometimes bad things are going to happen in this life. It's not a time to, to, to just... And get this, oftentimes when bad things happen in a Christian's life, they use that as a time to blame God and to cut ties with him and just say, God must not love me because he allowed this to happen in my life. I don't understand. I'm done with you, God. I'm done. And we just, we, we just become disloyal very quickly to God. And what we don't, we fail to understand oftentimes is that we do live in a sin-cursed world and that sometimes the, the, the consequences of that come at us through no fault of our own, through no intention to do evil or practice evil, but things happen. People get sick, people die, things, relationships turn sour, jobs uh, go away, stability turns into instability. But we have to cling to the truth of God's word. It's found in Romans 8.28. And I also think about Job. This, is, this, this remark that Job makes in Job 121 is coming on the heels of him absolutely losing everything. Everything. His family, his possessions, his wealth. It's gone. It's wiped out. And he's getting news after news after news. And what is his response? Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is an extraordinarily difficult thing to say in those circumstances, and yet he said it. Did he doubt? He sure did. Read the rest of the book of Job. He doubted like crazy. Did he, did he have second thoughts? Yeah, like crazy, because he's a fallen human being. But the Lord walked him through it, and at the end, um, he came out loyal to God. So, just some reminders there. What is this? What's the answer to the big question? What does Ruth 1 teach us about loyalty? Well, Ruth 1 teaches us that human loyalty is often tested in times of trouble, and the results are often mixed. The results are often mixed. We see Elimelech kind of dropping the ball. We see Malon and Killian dropping the ball. We see Ruth even, or Naomi even dropping the ball. And then we see this Moabite woman who is who's a widow putting on display 
loyalty that is just incredible. The results are often mixed. Well, I'm thankful this morning that with God, the results are never mixed. God's steadfast love never fails. His loyalty to his people never goes away. God is always working to draw sinners to himself. He's always working to sanctify the saved. And, and I just got to tell you, uh, the, that reality is made new to me every single day. The reality that God is continuing <laughs> to chisel away at my life. He's continuing to draw me into a deeper relationship with himself. He's continuing to draw sinners to himself. And all he, all he reminds us of constantly over and over again is that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. These are things that we need to cling on to in times of difficulty, in times of uncertainty, for sure. By way of application, let me just point out a few things. First of all, this is just a kind of a gut check question for you to wrestle with between you and God. I want you to consider what circumstances would need to happen for you to abandon your loyalty to God. Are you the type of person that at the slightest sign of trouble, at any source of stress or, or strife in your life, you're like the wet watermelon seed Christian, right? God puts a little bit of pressure on you and you're gone. Think about it. Think about it. Stop. Perhaps it's time for you to break out of this thinking that if as long as I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing according to God's word, I'm going to be blessed, dressed, well-fed, that's not part of God's promises in this life. Secondly, practice. You know, we, we, we get better at what we practice, right? So practice uh, being a loyal person. Practice loyalty in your life, right? Proverbs 17, 17, uh, Proverbs, seven, oops, Proverbs 17, 17, I didn't put it up on the screen, says this, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. We need to practice our loyalty to one another, practice loyalty to God. How do we practice loyalty to one another? We, we learn, as we go through the trials of our own lives, we learn how to minister the, the word of God to others and to stand next to them and be with them in times of difficulty and struggle and trial. We can be a Ruth to a person like Naomi, right? And then finally, uh, I would challenge you to memorize Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. It doesn't take long, and it's just something to have in, in your brain whenever a trial comes. Here it is. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You could, you could, you could insert loyalty there, right? The loyal love of, of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Aren't you glad that we serve a God like that? Amen. Father, we thank you for this book, Ruth chapter one, and uh, all the lessons that are contained therein. Father, I pray that as we think about life, let's think about it accurately, according to what your word has told us about it, not through rose-colored glasses of Christianism, you, you know, Western United States Christianism that tends to think everything's going to be okay as long as we're doing our part, but to 
but to realize that life is often messy and things, bad things happen to good people sometimes. We don't understand why, Lord. We don't understand why you allow things to happen the way that you do, but we do know this, that you are a good and faithful God and that anything that you do on this earth is being done for our good and for your glory, even if in the moment we don't understand it. So Father, help us to practice loyalty to you, the one who has been loyal to us and continues in that loyalty and help us to to be loyal to others, other Christians that we come into contact with, to stand next to them and with them and be by them when they go through tough times. Father, we recognize that this will come, as it did with Ruth, with great personal inconvenience and sacrifice. But we also know, Father, that in that personal inconvenience and sacrifice, you will continue to work out your plan in our lives and to grow us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, whose name in which we pray, amen.